Father, we thank you that you have not left us in a void, that you have spoken to us, as well as having created us, you have spoken to us about our souls, about the creation, about our future, about salvation. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the great truths of Scripture that we must stand fast and hold to in our generation to be faithful witnesses. We pray that you give us insight into the darkness of the world around us so that we would be able to obediently worship you and manifest a stand for truth in exactly those areas that are being um, contested by the powers of darkness in our time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it's been a while, and so uh, we've all gone through the holidays, and uh, so let's just review a little bit and get oriented. I think that would help everybody. Um, help if I plugged in the projector. Let's see here. Okay, just to kind of review where we are in the overall scheme of things, we're still on creation, and because we're still on the creation event, Genesis 1 and 2, we're still working those three areas, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of nature, because those three doctrines are the building blocks for uh, what follows in the scriptures. We can't understand salvation if we do not understand sin. We cannot understand sin if we do not understand God and man. So God, man, and nature form the basic foundation. And then on top of that and in progress after that, uh, the scriptures get into other issues. So we're working with that. We have emphasized over and over the fact that there are really only two positions that men have held that either there is a creator or there isn't and paganism says there isn't there may be creators plural but since they're plural they themselves are somehow created and part of the system and we call that belief that everything is part of the system as the doctrine of the continuity of being and that doctrine of the continuity of being underlies modern, modern paganism, which is, we know as evolution. Evolution is not something new in, in its foundation. All it is is a modern-day version of something that has been around for a long, long time. And so we look at that and we say that um, there are implications. Uh, if you believe one way, there are certain implications and consequences that follow. If you believe the other way, there are certain implications and consequences that follow from that. And these, these carry over into every area of life. Now, we have moved on from the great distinction. We've talked about the creator-creature distinction a lot. And in the last few times we've met together, we have dealt with another kind of distinction, the man-nature distinction. So we've drawn a little diagram 
First we said that God has certain characteristics, that He has attributes. He has many attributes. We've just isolated a few of those attributes and we've called one of them that He is omnipresent, that He is always, everywhere. We have said that He is omnipotent, that He is never tired. He has unlimited energy. We have said that He is immutable. He never changes. He's the basis of all stability. We said that He is eternal and that there never was a time when He didn't exist and that all moments of time are opened to Him. Uh, sweetie, would you get them some uh, notes? Uh, the um, other attributes, sovereignty, that God rules and that He has total rule over all things. He works all things after the counsel of His will. There's not God and something else. If there were God and something else, then we would have uh, chance and uh, basically dice behind the universe. So we have sovereignty, and then we have holiness, and some people call that righteousness and justice, but it's all in a cluster here. God is love, and we have that God is omniscient. And we made a point about all of these attributes, and these, this is an important point, um, and so we want to review this one point before we go any further. Every one of these attributes were expressed prior to the creation of the universe. Every one of these attributes were expressed prior to the creation of the universe. Why do we say that? This is some theoretical thing. No, it isn't. Because if we say that those attributes were not expressed prior to the creation, we then are in effect saying God needed the universe and that somehow he and the universe together are, are uh, mutually supportive of one another. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. That denies the transcendency of God. And so we say that all those attributes, including love, was expressed prior to creation. But love needs an object. And this is why the Christian religion alone, of all the religions on earth, the Christian religion alone, with its doctrine of the Trinity, provides an eternal object of love and provides a basis for saying that love could have been exercised without a universe around. Solitary monotheism, which is a, a sort of a, a pseudo-biblical position in, in, in Judaism and Islam, does not have a trinity, and the result of that is they have a problem here with that particular attribute. That attribute is very weakly expressed in Islam simply because uh, it's related to the, per the multiple personality in God. Well, we said now that the universe is separate, therefore, and distinct from God. So we have dealt with the creator-creature distinction. And as part of that dealing with the creator-creature distinction, we've said that those attributes of God are similar to, but not identical to creatures of the universe, for, for creature qualities. So while the creatures may have qualities down here, those qualities cannot be identical to God. So we said, we've used this term, the qualities of God and the qualities of the universe, the qualities in man, because by doing that upper and lower case Q, it's just a way we have of reminding ourselves that 
the creature's love, the creature's knowledge, the creature's justice, the creature's occupation of time is not identical to that of God. Similar, yes, but not identical. And this is why man is said to be an image of God. Man is not said to be God. Man is not equal to God, but he is in the image of God. He is an image, and an image is a similarity to that which it's an image of. So this is why we insist on this. And this may seem like a theoretical point until we get down further on. Keep in mind, some of the things I'm saying here and some of the things I put in the notes, I've put there because of what's coming. I'm, I'm building a base. And later you'll see how this figures together. And the base was, was, has come out of a lot of apologetics in the last two or three hundred years particularly. Okay, so last few times we have dealt with the nature then of, of man and this universe, this creation. And we said we wanted to divide this between man and nature. So now we have dealt with the creator-creature distinction, now we're introducing the man-nature distinction. Now, each one of these distinctions is important. Both of them are very, very important because fundamentally, if we go back to this old diagram that we see again and again, the continuity of being, the continuity of being basically gets slippery at these distinctions. The continuity of being uh, smears the creator-creature distinction. It smears the difference between man and nature. And there are consequences to that. So that's why we're saying be careful here. I'm just pointing out something, something that we must be crisply aware of as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, that our faith, expressed in the pages of Scripture, is a faith that insists upon these fundamental distinctions. These are uncrossable, they are unbreachable, they are eradicable. They are fundamental distinctions. And all of paganism, through the doctrine of the continuity of being, smears across these. Now you know this intuitively just by having lived in the 20th century. All of you at some time in your lives have been treated to the evolutionary cosmology. And what does evolution basically say about man? They say that there's a continuity between man and primate. Yes, there may have been perturbations, there may have been mutations, but basically natural law expressed through mutation and natural selection led from a primate type of form to man. That is an expression of the ancient pagan view of the continuity of being. There is not a distinction between animals and man, an unbreachable distinction. So that's why we, I belabor this point because it will come up again and again. And we cannot have the gospel of Jesus Christ adequately understood in a universe that has no distinctions. If we're going to insist that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be, God incarnate, we must distinct, hold to the creator-creature distinction. If we do not, we cannot correctly understand Jesus. And if we do not hold the difference between man and nature, we cannot deal with the problem of sin. Nature doesn't sin. Man does. Man has a peculiar responsibility that the primate does not have. Man is a position that the primate does not have. Man is judged in the way that the primate is not judged. Man is saved in a way that the primate is not saved. So, this distinction 
undergirds and shapes the whole expression of the gospel. So this is why when we totter around in these fundamentals, it always weakens the gospel. And we pay a severe price for that. Now we said in the notes, uh, we've gone through God's description of creation of man in pages 33 and 34. And then we started in the bottom of page 34 to deal with the unique design of man. And we, we discussed some of these and we want to finish that discussion tonight. What we're doing here under the unique design of man is to point out the man-nature distinction. How is man different from nature? So all of these four points that we're dealing with have to do with this, this point, this distinction. So we're going to elaborate the man-nature distinction under these four areas. So go. this is our subject here for tonight, man and nature. Now the first big major difference between man and nature is, is, starts in the bottom of page 34 where I say of central importance is the truth that man is an image of God both in body and in spirit. So man alone of everything created in Genesis 1, man alone is said to be in God's image. Nothing else. Not the dog, not the cat, not the primate, nothing else. But man is said to be in God's image. And we said that this has to do with the fact that God expresses himself in the creation of man. So man is an image of God and we have used the coined term, he is a theomorphism. Morphism is the word for form, theo, God. So man is theomorphic. He, he and he alone has this quality. We also said that on page 35, or page 35, that this imageness includes not just his spirit but also his body. That the body is the form of our body has significance. And again, I quote uh, up on the top of page 35. If you haven't put a little asterisk out there. I want you to notice Dr. Pilkey's quote where he says the, um, uh, it's the fifth line down, begins with the dots, because it implies that God in the creation failed to harmonize the form of the body with these faculties. In other words, the form in which we are, five fingers in each hand, arms, toes, eyes, and so on, our form is related to this imagehood. Such that when God visits the planet, he doesn't come as a Martian. God does not come as an animal. He doesn't show up as a sphinx. He shows up as a man. And the Bible says that that is the maximal revelation of God. In other words, showing up in the form of a man is the most efficient way God has of expressing himself, which means all other ways are inefficient. And all other ways are not glorifying God. And that other forms, non-human form, does not efficiently express the essence of what God is like. I also pointed out on page 35 how this is related to the incarnation and salvation of the gospel. 
And I quoted Tertullian, one of the ancient church fathers. How Tertullian made this stunning statement of picturing how when God created Adam in the garden, he had Jesus Christ in mind. Because he was making man such that he would be a vehicle later in history for incarnation. So as his fingers molded the clay, and as he made man, he was preparing for Jesus Christ. Now the second principle, or the second aspect of the difference between, God, uh, between man and, and nature, is on page 35 down the bottom, through his body, man rules nature. Now this is very controversial in our time because of the, uh, the environmental movement. We'll deal with that later. But I'm sorry, we're not going to be embarrassed about it. Man is to rule nature. This is an extremely controversial statement in our time because of man's misrule of nature. But just because man has misruled nature doesn't mean he wasn't created to rule nature. In fact, the fact that he's misruled nature shows you that he was, in fact, created to rule nature. And nature screwed up when man misrules shows that man, therefore, has a function. And he has a tremendous and powerful function on nature. He, if you want real environmentalism, and we'll get into this when we get into the fourth chapter in the Doctrine of the Fall. If you really want responsibility and environmentalism, the Bible gives you such a powerful environmentalism, such a powerful responsibility, that most men will flee from it. Because what the Bible says is that it was man who screwed up the whole universe. It was man who brought in death. It was man who, by his fall, destroyed nature. It wasn't because he threw Coca-Cola cans around. It was because he sinned against God. That is what ruined nature. And all the rest of it follows. So, environmentalism and responsibility to the environment is taught in the scriptures, but it's taught in such a way that it becomes very offensive, extremely offensive to the pagan mind. Because they don't want that extreme kind of environmentalism. Because to say that we are ultimately responsible for the environment because we sinned against God, ooh, we don't want to touch that one. So we back off of that and talk about somebody throwing Coca-Cola cans on the side of the road. In other words, we trivialize the responsibility of man toward his environment. Okay, so that's the, uh, the second point. And I quote Hugo St. Victor down the bottom, page 35, the spirit was created for God's sake, the body for the spirit's sake, and the world for the body's sake, so that the spirit might be subject to God, the body to the spirit, and the world to the body. And we point out in 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 2 how the dominion of Genesis 1 is finally accomplished through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ finishes what Adam was to start. Jesus Christ one day conquers the universe he conquers the entire universe, including the heavenly part of the universe. Adam started out just trying to rule the garden. And then man was to rule the planet Earth. And Jesus Christ, by his powerful ministry, is engaged in winging dominion over the entire universe. The heavens will also be subject to man. That is, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, and I quote that down there for those of you who want to look at the verse, Hebrews 2, 5, the Bible goes so far as to say that man will one day be superior to the angels. 
So that whereas in the original creation, if you want to do the pecking order, it's God, angels, man, and the rocks, and the animals. In the ultimate universe, in the universe to come, it's God, man, angels, and nature. And you'll see the reversal. That reverse takes place in the new heavens and the new earth. And it has to do with the dominion of Jesus Christ and how he is winning that dominion in some way through our obedience and disobedience and it gets into the whole, the cosmic implications of why do angels watch Christians when we worship, uh, expressed in 1 Corinthians. Um, why do angels watch us? Uh, what is Jesus doing in the angelic unseen realms? Whole, whole dimensions to the Bible. But all of it fundamentally emanates from man's role to rule over nature. Okay, those are two distinctions in the man-earth, the man-nature distinction. On page 36, we provide a third one. Um, this is more of an observation than something functionally um, of the magnitude of the first two. Uh, and that is just to make you realize what we read in Genesis text. And that is we read something different about our creation than the animals. The animals are created in genders, gender pair, male and female. But the funny thing is, when God goes to create man, in the, man, the human gender pair, he does so with an odd, odd uh, description. In the case of man, he creates one body. And then he divides it into male and female. And you may say, oh, how, you know, what a nice little thing that was. Well, the Bible doesn't waste words. And when you appreciate the flow of Scripture and the flow of Revelation, you always say to yourself later on, oh, over here I read something, and that must be why God did it this way back there. And in the New Testament we read about that we are in Adam or we are in Christ. It doesn't say we are in Adam and Eve and in Christ. Something of this racial solidarity that's behind the way that man and woman were first created, something, that solidarity in one has something to do with the redemption in Christ. Christ is one, Adam is one. So that the head of Eve is actually Adam. And... It's not in the sense of, uh, of, you know, beat her into the sidewalk or something. It's not prejudicial in value. It's simply saying there is a racial solidarity that men have, mankind has, that no animal pair has. And we can't go into it anymore because the Bible doesn't tell us anymore. It just makes this observation in Genesis 2, this is the way Eve came out of man. Now, the um, fourth point, which is the one that a lot of people think of when they think of the uh, man-nature distinction and the immature of God, and that gets into the spiritual side of man. So now, the fourth one, we'll spend the rest of our time developing that tonight and on into some of the applications. And that is man's spirit which is in the image of God. I clarify man's spirit in the image of God because animals are said to have spirits. 
Ecclesiastes speaks of the animal spirit. Uh, the Noahic flood narrative in Genesis 7 speaks of animals with spirit. Here's why. Spirit in the Hebrew is the same thing as breath. And we get very Greek about the way we think. And we always think of, every time we see the word spirit, we think of some spooky, immaterial thing. In the Old Testament, that immaterial thing is not separated out from the physical that much. So, when, for example, in the Garden of Eden, do you remember what the narrative says? Now, you all should have read Genesis 2. Again, if, if think of yourself as a, as, a, as a movie director. And here you are, you've got, you've got this actor uh, playing Adam. Here's the body. Now, what is the next thing after God gets through shaping Adam? What does the text say he did? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of lies. And at that point, man is said to have spirit. And so there's almost like a formula that you get in the Bible where spirit plus body creates soul. And we want to then, if the spirit is not some spooky thing, but really manifests itself in certain ways, we ought to be able to describe a presence of a spirit. So all I've done on pages 36 and 37 is to point you to observable traits that show the existence of our spirit. What makes man have spiritual nature? And I think now you'll see why. For the last few weeks, we have been emphasizing to you that God's attributes over here, sovereignty, His holiness, His love, and His omniscience. Remember we said they were communicable? Remember we said... And we had a good question the other night. Why do I call that communicable? And I said it was just a label because those attributes tend to be more like us than the other attributes. Well, now here's where the payoff. Because now we're dealing with the spirit of man. And what we're going to do is to show the analog characteristics of all of those four attributes in man. And it turns out that the analogs of those attributes are the very evidences of the presence of the human spirit. So number one, on the bottom page 36, you see choice. Because man is created with his own spirit, fashioned in God's image, he can never escape the presence of God in the depths of his heart. He has to submit to him with a heart of faith or he has to rebel against him with a heart of unbelief. It's axiomatic with the creation of man. We are held responsible. And our human responsibility is our finite version of God's sovereignty. Our will, in other words. Now, there's something, and this is an aside, for those of you who are really stimulated and like to carry out issues and do some thinking, just before uh, that paragraph about choice on page 36, you'll see I underline something. That little sentence up there where I underline, interestingly, no one doubts these qualities exist, yet they cannot be measured, they cannot be touched, they cannot be tasted, and they cannot be seen. Precisely the very same features unbelievers claim that make them doubt God's existence. There was a famous professor, in fact he still lives, he's an evangelical professor, I think he teaches at Notre Dame, uh, Alvin Plantinga, and he's written a book called God and Other Minds. And he has come up with a very interesting point. He says if you analyze all the arguments against God's existence, 
that deny his existence because you can't touch him, can't feel him, and so on. What you wind up discovering when you analyze the argument is that those very same arguments deny the existence of man. Because the human mind, not the brain, the mind, the evidence of the spirit cannot be seen, cannot be touched, cannot be seen. So whatever arguments you pull off, trying to eradicate the existence of God, you wind up eradicating the existence of man's mind. And hence, therefore, the title of his book, God and Other Minds. And that's what I'm getting at here. These evidences are, are, are very deep. They're not just picked off the surface. Because none of them can be basically treated like a physical phenomenon. All right, choice is one, which is the analogy and, and answers to God's in his sovereignty. And then on page 37, if you follow that, I say, here is why man, unlike animals, is held ultimately responsible for his eternal destiny. As the Lord of nature, man alone has the quality of choice that corresponds, but is not identical to, the quality of God's sovereignty. In other words, God is sovereign over angels, over universe, over the galaxies. His sovereignty is infinite. But man's choice over here is on a finite level over something. Just as God's sovereignty rules over something, man's choice rules over something. And man's choice rules over the details in his life, over the domain over which he has power and control, over his do the domain of him as the Lord, the Lord of creation, little l. So man has this analogous characteristic and trait. Now, your dog doesn't have that. He may, I mean, he, he reacts, but he, he's not held eternally accountable like you are, like I am for his choices. A second feature, which is a little bit more detail, is conscience. The sense we all have, all men have, of the fact that there's a standard of right and wrong. Conscience. And conscience answers to God's holiness. So again, we have this analogous structure between God as a spirit, and here, lo and behold, here's a spirit in man. And the finite spirit of man has an analogous relationship with the infinite spirit of God. Now, let's look at conscience a moment. Conscience is an evidence of the presence of the human spirit in both Christian and non-Christian. The non-Christian has conscience. All men, regardless of whether they say they believe in Jesus or say they believe in the existence of God or anything else, all have an innate sense of right and wrong. That's why, in the first sentence on page 37, that paragraph under B, conscience, although man knows that he himself fails, he can never restrain himself from making real moral judgments. Remember we said at the beginning, chapter 1, how do we deal with presuppositions? And we went on and about for presuppositions. Everybody, what are we doing with presuppositions? Now you're beginning to see what I was getting at back there. Remember I said, how do you smoke out presuppositions? By listening to how people judge, where they make their moral choices. This ought to be. That's wrong. Now you know people say that. Well, that ought to be a little flag signal to us. Whenever we're in conversation or we're just quietly listening to someone and that you hear them express a moral judgment, you're seeing the manifestation of the human spirit at work. No matter what they do, it's undeniable. It pops out. 
It's got to, because man is made that way. Just as if you sit there long enough, they're going to breathe. They've got to. And if you sit there long enough, they've got to make a moral judgment. Sooner or later, they're going to make a moral judgment. Just like they're going to take a breath. Because both of them are of the essence of being made in God's image. That thing called conscience is an analogous characteristic to God's holiness. Okay. Uh, clarification. As we read that paragraph, uh, I want, I'm going through the sentences. That they, I've tried to write these pretty carefully, and they're, they're pretty loaded. So um, let, let me just go through that paragraph on conscience. These judgments are not intended. Now, what happens when you begin to point this out to someone? Oh, well, that's, that's just social opinion. See, the moment you start taking it seriously, then all of a sudden it gets greasy. And they want to start backing up and say, well, I didn't really mean immoral judgment. I was just expressing my opinion. Well, why is there this, this all of a sudden, we're getting slippery now? Well, let's, let's think about it. These judgments are not intended merely as opinions or likes or dislikes. They intend to appeal to some transcendent moral authority. It's not true that they're expressing just likes and dislikes. If you push them back far enough, they have to admit they're not talking about the mere fact that this is dislike, I dislike this. That's not what we're saying. It's, not, it's more powerful than saying, I dislike this. They're saying, it's wrong. You know, I was always amazed when, I, when we were... I've been around these people, the relativists, and they would sit there and they'd fundamentally deny there was any such thing as right and wrong. And my favorite way of showing them that they really believed that there was a right and a wrong, I said, oh, well, then apartheid in South Africa is right. No problem. Oh, no, no, that's wrong. Oh, oh, what did I hear you say? It was wrong. Well, maybe the South Africans, that's just their opinion. Or another favorite is, oh, if there's nothing such thing right and wrong, then what the Nazis did in the 30s to the Jews is okay. No problem. Just a social phenomenon, right? Oh, no, 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 it's wrong. Well, where are we getting right and wrong from? Watch this, because those are good examples, and here's why. Look at the next sentence. Where is the authority for such judgments? Underline that. That's key. Where is the authority for the judgment? It cannot come from experience with nature, because whatever is the state of affairs isn't necessarily what is right. See, that's the fallacy where you do a sociological study and you get your bell-shaped curve and they, they go through all these interviews and they say, gee, what does Johnny do? What does Mary think? And uh, what do the people in New York State think or this state? And we come out and we, have, we diagram opinions and we say, here's public opinion and here's what the majority of people believe. Well, is that middle of the bell-shaped curve what really people mean when they say something's right and wrong? No. How do you know that? Because in the majority, the majority in the case of apartheid and Nazi Germany went along with it. So you're going to say, therefore, that the statistical mean is the expression of the right and the wrong? You can't, you're not saying that. You're not serious. Of course you don't. There's something else. But what is this something else, then? If it's not society... If it's not nature around you, where is this moral authority? 
And that's the dilemma, and it's a very serious one. Don't ever be embarrassed as a Christian, walking around with this inferiority complex that, you know, we've got all the problems. Hey, this is a far problem. This is a major problem. Because what it is, is try as they might, the unbeliever can't deny ultimately that he's a human spirit craving God. And it pops out every time he makes a moral judgment because he keeps appealing to a transcendent authority. An authority over society. Okay, so that's the second feature of man that's analogous to God. Right, going down the third one. Love. Not often said, but that is analogous to God. All men and all women have a need for love and they have the experience of knowing that when they are loving another person, there's something powerful in that. There's something powerful in that. And it's something that we all acknowledge is there. I mean, after all, what's, what is 90% of music, pop music written about? It's the struggle of personal relationships. What was literature written about? Personal relationships. So, it is something that men have always had to deal with. But now, notice something. Let's go down to that paragraph on page 37. Love requires something in order to exist. Love requires the existence of another human spirit, for it can never be truly exercised apart from a personal relationship. I mean, you may have great relationship with your dog, but that doesn't really qualify here for what we're talking about. Why do I know that? Because of Genesis 2.18. What does Genesis 2.18 say? If a dog could provide it, God would have given Adam a dog. And Adam had a test. He went around. He couldn't find it. He had dogs, cats, snakes. And he never had a personal relationship with any one of them. Couldn't find it. What was God teaching Adam? That in order to express himself, he needed another human being around. All men acknowledge, directly and indirectly, this need. Now, come down to the second paragraph, because now we get the clinker. Just as with conscience and with choice, man has a problem. With love, he also has a very severe problem. And here it is. The quality of human love can never be identical to the quality of God's love. God's love depends upon nothing in the universe, right? Remember what we said we started tonight? It pre-existed creation within his triune nature. So it's not contingent on circumstance. It's not contingent on something outside of him. Human love, by contrast, remains fragile. It is always dependent upon creature existence. To exist, human love requires an environment in which man's existence is unthreatened so that it is safe to give. Now you think about that for a minute. The cup cannot run over unless the cup is full. And the cup isn't going to want to give of itself if it's threatened. Love can, in a threatening environment can't coexist 
there has to be a protection, there has to be meaning. And I don't mean the fact that, for example, you can say, well, a counterexample would be a mother who sees her, her kid go in front of a car and in her love for the child will come out and grab the kid and get hit by the car. And you can say, well, she didn't, it was that a threatening environment. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is if the whole universe and all circumstances around you are not, you're, you're sitting there and you're not interpreting the fact that it's going to be really safe to commit yourself to this relationship or that relationship or it's not safe to show your humanity in any way. It's because of insecurity. The universe is basically unfriendly. Now, God could express his love in eternity because nothing threatens it. He can give, 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 give. Now, nothing's going to happen to him because he gives. He's got wealth. He's got that which empowers his love because it's in an unthreatened environment. So, let's go on then. This environment, the environment in which it is safe to give, this environment cannot be supplied by the pagan worldview because it has no infinite personal God who loves with sovereignty and omnipotence. Unless you have a personal, sovereign, omnipotent, loving creator, you have no basis for human love. It gets back to the same thing we have with conscience. Unless you have a personal, absolute, infinite, holy God, there's nothing that explains conscience. And if you do not have a personal, infinite, sovereign, powerful God who loves, there's no basis for love either. It's just a mask. It's a human phenomena, just sitting there very on the surface. It doesn't mean anything. And this is why historically, if you go around the con, people can say all they want to about hypocrites in the church. But let me tell you something. You can go to any continent on this planet where Christians have had vibrant communities and ask yourself a question. Who was it that brought orphanages? Who was it that brought a real sense of the sacredness of marriage in those areas? Who was it that first spoke out for human rights and particularly women's rights? It's all there in the record. And we say all we want to about Oriental religion, but you know who built the orphanages in India? Okay. So it's related, these practical things are related to our faith. Now the last one is knowledge, page 38. And we're going to spend an awful lot of time on that when we get into the next part. So I, I'm just going to kind of go through that tonight and showing you the main outlines of this. Pay attention, though, to this because here's where presuppositions have very practical results. We deal with human knowledge. Of course, we're dealing with education. We're dealing with anything having to do with knowledge here. And people will use this against Scripture. Well, let's look at what knowledge is all about. That first paragraph on page 38 under knowledge, you'll notice I quote 2 Peter 2.12. Let's turn there. It's a casual report on the surface that Peter makes here in his epistle. But we want to just look at one word that Peter uses. Peter says in 2 Peter 2.12, 
he's talking about apostates. And notice what he says about them. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. I want you to focus on the word translated, at least in my translation, as unreasoning. Sometimes it's translated in the older translations as brute. It's the word alogia. Aloga in Greek. And, of course, you recognize the stem, L-O-G-O. Except this is the feminine ending, so it has an A on it. And it has an A prefix, and the A prefix always is equal to not. And laga, there's lagos, not word, not thought, not speech. In other words, animals lack those qualities. They lack thought and speech. And that's precisely the point. What is it that separates the human spirit from the cat and the snake? The fact that we have human speech. We can carry on conversation. We can think conceptual thoughts. And we said that each one of these attributes corresponds, and here's God's omniscience, and it corresponds to knowing. So we want to look at that correspondence, how it's the same, similar, but how it's also different. So let's go through this, sentence by sentence. Human knowledge presupposes a standard of truth. Just like um, we say that something is right or wrong, we say something is true or false. And people know this, it's just it's implicit in our, in our existence. Omniscience is its own standard of truth. That's the difference. Human knowledge presupposes universal truths. Now, I notice the sentence, men always use universals. Always, never. Remember we talked about that in chapter 1? The presence of universals in human speech. Never. Always. Everywhere. All. We all, our speech is full of this because we're making universals. We can't avoid communicating without communicating universals. And my favorite modern illustration of that is the deconstructionists that are feeding our English classes in school, that are insisting that the way literature, all literature is contaminated and has to be deconstructed of its prejudicial orientations. Well, if that were really true, then how come you couldn't say that the person who's saying that you should deconstruct that his statement that it should be deconstructed shouldn't be deconstructed? See, what they do is they always make you play by the rules, but they don't. They're teaching old-fashioned truth. All the while saying everybody else's books need to be deconstructed, except mine, because I've got the insight. It's like when you take education courses. How do they teach you how to teach? With a lecture method. You ever notice that's the funniest thing you ever see? They always want you to teach in small groups, and they have all these nice teaching theories. But when the guy in the education courses teaches, what their method is he use? Nine times out of ten, you watch. It's the lecture method. Well, this is the same thing. Whenever we teach, whenever we speak, we presuppose universals. We cannot avoid that any more than we can avoid judging. All right, human knowledge derives from sensory perception and reasoning. We're going to get into that in, in the next section. Omniscience is independent. That's why I said there are two people in the universe that don't ever learn God and the moron. God because he always has known. Moron because he can't ever know. Human knowledge can imagine things to create by various tools, 
conscience, uh, omniscience creates directly. When God imagines, he can just say. Keep this in mind. This is going to be, we're going to get into this when we get into the date of the universe and what about 4,000 years, what about 10,000 years, what about 4 billion years. It's a principle that's going to come up then. It's going to come up in the math. But what I'm preparing you for now is that our God, who is the creator creature, when he thinks of something and he says it, he doesn't need a tool. He doesn't need a prior process. When Jesus Christ spoke, things happened. And one of the apostles, who was the greatest observer of Jesus, who, because he was the closest to Jesus, spotted the things in his ordinary life and he reports them to us in his gospel, the other guys don't. For example, only in one of the gospels do you have the following incident take place. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus being betrayed by Judas, being abandoned by all the disciples. Here come the police, the temple guards, with Judas and the lantern. The great moment of the betrayal. And here in the utter hopelessness of the Garden of Gethsemane, when all, everything is turned against him, and those guards come walking up, armed, all Jesus said, they asked him for his, you know, his ID. Where is Jesus Christ? And what did he say? He uttered the words of Jehovah in the Old Testament, I am. What happened to the policemen? They all fell over. In other words, there John the Apostle, probably he's the only one awake that saw the whole thing, but the point was that something happened when God spoke. He spoke and instantaneously nature responded, men responded. God's word is that way. So we want to be careful when we come later on to his creative acts. That's the difference between our knowledge. Our knowledge doesn't do that. Our knowledge can try to predict our knowledge can dream and then we have to work with our hands or the artist and the poet have to work with their art forms to bring that idea into existence. God doesn't have to use his hands. God simply speaks and it is so. It's a difference. All right, and then finally, in the bottom of page 38, we come to something very central in our day. And as Christians, we want to be aware of this. This is affecting us. It's affecting us in the way we learn information. It's affecting us in the way we no longer read, but we speak. It's affecting us in a lot of areas of our culture right now. And that is the issue of language. Central to human knowledge is language. Human language is quite limited, as anyone who has struggled to express an impression or intuition. And over the last century or so, studies have exposed further limitations in human language and thought behind it. This is not just modern day, but there were famous skeptic in Paul's day, and he's spoken of in the book of Titus. There was a Cretan philosopher who uttered these words. One of the first semantic paradoxes in history. question is, how do you take that? Think about it for a minute. If he says, I am lying, and he's speaking the truth, if, if, that, if he really is lying, he's speaking the truth, and he can't be lying. If he's lying, then it's false that he's lying. That's called a semantic paradox. And there's, there's, there's guys have studied this. I mean, men have spent decades analyzing stuff like this. And all I'm doing is bringing in to show you something. That human language has inherent limitations to it. 
tied in with our logic, tied in with our words, tied in with our abilities to construct sentences. That's a limitation. But it's only a limitation of our language. It's not a limitation of language. And what has happened in our time is that poets and writers have looked at this and said, oh, gee, language has limitations. So what we're going to do to really get to truth is we've got to go behind language, throw it all out, and go over to mysticism. And so there's a big thrust in our time to go to mysticism behind language because they say that's the only way you can get to real truth. And that's the new age. The new age is going in this direction. Everywhere around us we see this. The emphasis no longer on the content of speech and the, it takes work to communicate. It takes work to write a sentence that expresses. And mysticism tries to say that language because it's limited here's the argument Language is limited, and that's well known now. Second, therefore, truth is greater than language. And so you have the emphasis on feeling, an emphasis on mysticism. It creeps into evangelical Christian circles all the time. Whenever you have a demeaning of the teaching of Scripture and an emphasis on the feeling, you have the same thing. It's just an evangelical version of mysticism. Everywhere this happens, it's the whole society is going crazy with this idea. And it all started out in the beginning of our century and has spread through professors, it's spread through the schools. The answer to it, though, that we want to emphasize tonight, because we're talking about how man is different from nature. Man is not God, but man has finite version of God. And our answer to this is, yeah, man's language is limited, but God's isn't. So God's language stands. And language is not demeaned by merely pointing to the defects of human language. Ultimately, we go back, in the beginning was what? The Word of God. It is the second person of the Trinity. What's the title of the second person of the Trinity in that passage? Language. God, the Word, and the Spirit. Three titles to the Trinity. And so language is central to Scripture. Hence, therefore, the Scripture and the Bible being language is the way God talks to us. It's not the only way, but it is the way He has ordained. When God comes to Adam in the garden, what does He do with Adam? Does He play rock music? Or does He speak to him? God carries on a conversation. Well, why does God carry on a conversation? Answer, because it's the only way you get information from one mind to the other. Language is the only way I can convey information. Every time you use a computer, every time you're talking about a modem and a 230 RS-232 connection, you're talking about a language. Bits of information are being conveyed. The modem and the, the modem at the other end are programmed with knowledge. It's coding and decoding. And if one modem on the other end, or the computer at the other end, doesn't have the same language the other guy has, they don't talk. So there has to be a shared language. Language is of the essence here. And you can say, well, then doesn't that show that machines can speak? No, because man made the machines and patterned the machines after himself. 
So watch this then, that the, the language, we're going to get more into this, and in the, one of the exercises I, I ask you to go look up Proverbs 123. And um, I have a choice right now because of our time, whether I should go into the divine institutions or whether I should do that. Let me turn to Proverbs 123. Here's one of those passages in Scripture, very plain, very ordinary. But it's a major passage that reveals nuances of speech. And it's a great one uh, to illustrate the point. I want you to look at that uh, Proverbs 123 carefully. Notice the parallelism. Pour out my spirit. Make known my words. Now look at the two verbs. We've got parallelism here. Let's break down the language. Verb, pour out. First part of that verse. Verb, second one, make known. Now if this is poetic parallelism, there is some sort of similarity the author wants us to see between those two verbs. Now if you just forget the second one and read pour out my spirit the way it's normally read, how do you visualize the meaning of that sentence? Just from usual evangelical heritage. Well, pour out my spirit some, oh, some spooky thing that happens. But if you correct that interpretation by the parallel verse, what now do you know? Make known my words. What it's saying is that the spirit inside the person can't be known unless it expresses itself in speech. So how do I make my spirit known? By speaking. How does God's spirit make himself known? By speaking. And what is the Bible? His speech. So how do we know God? We know him through his word. Why is that? Because we have a spirit, we have a mind, and what things know a man but the spirit within him? Remember that? 1 Corinthians 2? Well, what things know God? How does, who knows God but the spirit of God which is in him? So language is the linkage between two spirits. It's, yes, there's a lot of, you can say there's more to language than just verbal understanding. Poets get emotional power in their language. Music does this. You can write lyrics and set them to music and have mighty power to that. We're not denying the power and the emotion, but we're simply saying that the language is the center. That's the carrier of all this. You dress it up, yes. You turn it into poetry instead of prose, yes. But it's still language. And it's language that links God and man, not mysticism. A nonverbal mysticism is a profound pagan idea. It's not that we Christians don't have emotions. We want emotions, yes. But never at the cost of destroying the carrier of knowledge, which is language. I pour out my spirit. I make known my words. Now, next time, we're going to deal, if you'll turn to page uh, 39, I want to quickly review, uh, quickly go through next time, because we're running a little behind now, um, the divine institutions. And you'll see what I call divine institutions, what people have called divine institutions for about, well, ever since the Protestant Reformation, actually. They're structures built into society 
that God shows in Genesis 1 and 2. All those three that I mentioned there, the first divine institution, the second divine institution, and the third divine institution, are all social structures of this creature called man made in God's image. And they are structures that are not out from society. They are not optional structures. They are structures that are of the essence of human growth and survival and dominion. If any one of those three structures is destroyed, the whole purpose and grandeur and the plan of man's dominion goes down the drain. And we're seeing that in our own society. So we want to pay attention to that. And if you'll look carefully on, on bottom page 41 and top of page 42, that exercise, uh, my paper was moving when it came through the printer on page 42 at the top, but I think you can still read it. Proverbs 123, and challenge to go look at that. And if you want to read ahead, because we are going to get into this next week, we want to go from man to the other side of the discontinuity and deal with nature. And that's, a, that's hard reading. Page 42 and 43 is kind of hard there. Uh, but it's a setup for what's coming. Because eventually you know what I'm going to get to. Before we end this chapter, we're going to deal with the whole issue of evolution, the age of the universe, and everything else. So this is, I'm, I'm preparing for that. So that's why we're, we're spending time doing these things. Okay. Um, let's just close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for creating us in your image. And we ask that your Holy Spirit bring to our minds your word. In Christ's name, amen. Friends are... Um, Comments somebody would like to start us off with? Yes, Debbie. that God did not become a burning bush is clarified because when Moses himself and it's a little rule in scripture and it's, it's so simple we forget it we keep forgetting this um, let the text interpret the text um, the guy for example people sit there and argue endlessly over the days of Genesis were they ages were they days well when God speaks from, from Mount Sinai in, in Exodus chapter 20 in verse 11 he sets up the work week as six days because in six days he made the world I mean if you were just a, a normal innocent Jewish peasant standing there before this mountain and you hear the voice of God and he tells you that the work week is six days long because he took him six days to make the earth I mean, you know, you just kind of get the idea that maybe he knows what he's talking about and that's the interpretation. Well, the same thing here in the burning bush because Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, when he's warning people against idolatry, I think it's in Deuteronomy 4 or 5 somewhere, he says, um, when, when God spoke, he said, uh, you, you saw neither a likeness of me 
You never saw a likeness of me. And of course, there in that context, he's talking about speaking of Mount Sinai, but Mount Sinai, he spoke out of fire and smoke. So you could you know, say the same thing. Whereas you're talking about the burning bush incident, that was the Mount Sinai incident. You could say, did God become smoke? No, he didn't. He spoke through it. And in fact, he, uh, there's a tradition in the Septuagint that the Apostle Stephen, the deacon Stephen, picks up in Acts 7. He has this big long speech just before he's stoned to death. And it's interesting, when Stephen gets to Mount Sinai, in that speech he gives, he says, he quotes the Septuagint, which reports that there were angels at Mount Sinai conveying the message of God. And you take that with Psalm, where, uh, Psalm 104, I think it is, where it says, He has made his messengers or his angels like flaming fire. And it begin, you begin to see, well, maybe what appeared to be fire to our, to our eyes, empirical fire, hot gas, uh, was more than that. Maybe the angelic forms can, can, they can manifest as people, because we know they do that. And they can, uh, maybe they can manifest as impersonal phenomena too. And that's always been it. Because if you just read Exodus and you think about God on Mount Sinai speaking, there's, not, there's nothing in the text there that reports anything unusual other than fire and smoke. But then you read what Stephen's talking about and he's talking about the world that was surrounded by angels. You know, well, wait a minute, I didn't see any. So, the, so that's what these forms. And we'll get into that form thing. If you'll, and the handout that we handed out tonight for next time deals with the issue of form. And it's a very important issue because idolatry has to do with form. And uh, language has to do with form. So we have to be careful uh, about that whole issue. But no, the answer is God did not become a burning bush. He spoke through a burning bush, and Moses understood that clearly. Yeah, Bob. You, you You mean as far as on the physical side, yeah. the correlation? Um, we have to be careful of that because we don't want to wind up deifying or idolizing the body. But the functions of God are repeatedly expressed in metaphors of the human body. The arm of my salvation shall free you. Um, uh, we speak of uh, God walking through the temple in the Old Testament in the psalm, Psalm 78. Um, so, they become, they become what any, all will agree they're metaphors. But the problem with that, just saying that, is that the reason that they work as metaphors is because there is some correspondence between our bodies. So God can, if there wasn't any correspondence between our bodies and God, then God could not use them as metaphors. You can only use a metaphor when speaking if you've thought it through that there's a similarity to it. So if God tells me he's like an arm, his salvation is a mighty arm that works, um, my imagery in my head is of a mighty arm, a fleshly arm of a person. And obviously I'm not saying that God is a, is a physical arm, but there's a correspondence there. 
And so why I've made that point about man made in the image of God as to his body is simply to protect us against disconnecting exterior form from his plans and his mind. And the reason we, why I play that up in our day is because we are submerged in a sea of Darwinism and uh, of, of thinking from a time of our childhood. We've brought, been brought up to believe that uh, things just evolved by chance and natural selection so that form, the shape of our bodies, is, uh, is sort of an accident. It's an outcome of a series of accidents that have come about so that the form becomes almost a meaningless... You know, and, and modern science fiction does that. I mean, when you see... We, we visualize creatures in Mars or in another galaxy. And it's always interesting that when the artists depict these in drama, uh, they have to draw these creatures unlike us, but enough like us, or they wouldn't communicate they were life. So th there's a need to say something about the form in which we exist over against, say, the form of a cat or the form of a dog. And in the ancient world, that was clearly understood because the Jews never had an, a zoomorphic picture or image of God. There are only two animals that are brought up in Scripture again and again as similar in function to God, and that's the lion and the lamb. And those animals have behavior and a form that somehow God designed to communicate something about his character. But be that as it may, it's certainly not the overwhelming way in which our form shows. And, and also, Bob, one of the things that I don't do here, you'll notice, and you, you perceptively notice that, when I talk about the QQs, I'm only talking about qualities of the human spirit there. That's why I confine that discussion for that, and I really don't make such a big issue out of the correspondence of the body, and that's to protect us against getting extreme here. It's just that we're trying to say that the function, that, that you can't separate the form in which we, our bodies are constructed from the function that God intended us to do. And that goes right down because, it, because you can take that to further in that famous psalm of 139, which I think every pregnant woman should read and every father who's expecting a child should read because Psalm 139 is probably the clearest passage in all of God's Word that deals with this mystery of pregnancy. And during those nine months, uh, a human being is being constructed. And 
Psalm 139 takes us through that construction. And it makes a, a tr- profound point when it says that as God constructs the physical body in the mother's womb, that physical body that is being constructed in the mother's womb corresponds to the destiny for that person. Because it says, all the days are written in my books, says God. And the body is not that whatever, and and this gets back to the fact that you have babies that are born with congenital defects. And Moses was one of them. Moses had a speech impediment. And it's interesting that that was a big discussion between him and God when God wanted him to be the spokesman of Pharaoh. And he had some sort of either speech impediment or he was slow of speech or something wrong. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but Moses had a problem in speech. And of course, here's the man who was the legislature of the world. Um, And God made a point in Exodus 4 when he's dealing with Moses' physical, mental maybe, defect, uh, he made a point that was pointed out to me by a, a woman who had a boy, she's a Christian lady, who had a son, who, how many operations did he have? It must have been dozens of operations. He had a very, very severe cleft palate. And she said, after she led her child to the Lord, you know, he, he couldn't, he'd have to keep getting these operations and the kids at school would laugh, you know, because of bandages and everything else. And, and she had to ha- figure some way of comforting him to say, there's meaning and purpose to your cleft lip and to all these surgeries and pain that you have to go through. And she was the one that illuminated me to Exodus 4 because in that passage, Moses is objecting to God assigning him a role that he can't do. And God gets mad at Moses at that point and he says, I made the stuttering tongue. And who made you so that you have a speech impediment? I made you that way and I'm telling you I want you to do this. And so she took that to, because it's very pertinent to her son who had this severe cleft lip, um, that God makes us for our role in life. And it's really a stunning, a stunning uh, psalm there. And it's an argument, by the way, for women taking care of themselves during pregnancy. Because it says that during pregnancy, it even uses the metaphor of the Garden of Eden. In that, the metaphor there is as God reached down into the dust of the earth in the Garden of Eden and made that body and shaped it. So, Psalm 139 says, I reached down, and he's talking about shaping it in the womb. But, it's interesting, it's in the metaphor of the Garden of Eden. It's almost as though, uh, you know, in biology they used to tell us um, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, the little slogan saying that when the baby goes through the thing he has gills and that's reminiscent of the fact that we were all fish at one time and they, they go through this that the ontogeny, the generation of the baby in the womb recapitulates or reviews the phylogeny or the development of, of, of the phyla. And that used to be a slogan of old Darwinism. Well, there's, there, in a way, we can say as Christians, on the basis of Psalm 139, that ontogeny recapitulates creation. That what we have being made in the womb is a, re- a recycling of what God was doing with the first man. And what's so stunning in our time for us to appreciate that is when we think of the fact, now we know the genetic code. Now we know all the information. And 
I was just reading the other day about the genetic code. I'm trying to keep up with my son. Is that Johns Hopkins? And he comes home and he talks about the, taking the enzymes and cutting up the DNA and trying to find where defects are in, in certain families. And, and they're trying to see can they narrow the defect of this this whole generation of people have had? Can they find what gene that is attached to so they can at least find out why? Well, in reading about this, a guy makes the point that there's one gigabyte of information in every female ovum that the, if you strapped out all the, the, the DNA and the, 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 the diagramming in the chemical instructions in the DNA which exist in order to build a body and every little bone, every tissue in that body is, is patterned and is, is coded in that DNA if you took the, the little egg and strung out all the information in terms of things that we use today would come out to over a gigabyte. And that's amazing that that much information is packed in that. And this is one of the arguments against evolution because, see, before we knew all this, the argument for evolution always was, well, uh, living things aren't machines. I mean, living things just evolved. Machines are man-made. Well, what have we discovered as we got into the gene? and you start mapping this information, it's information that's stored there. It's just like a hard disk in the sense that it's got bits of information stored in the code. So if that isn't a machine, I don't know what is. So we have a, a much more magnificent view of creation today and, and a harder idea of trying to explain the existence of this information on the basis of chance. Anybody who's programmed a computer knows that if you allow one contaminant in that program, right Mike? One contaminant in that program, you can spend hours trying to find out why doesn't this thing work? And, 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 and we have the a spectacle that we're all being told in our, in our culture today from the time we're little kids to the time we're adults, we get plastered with this stuff in the media that these high-grade storage and retrieval mechanisms in the DNA code all came about through throwing the dice. See, it becomes increasingly ridiculous when you look at it from the standpoint of information. So anyway, all that's wrapped up with the form of man and Psalm 139 is an excellent revelation of, of fetal development. The, the, the creation of man, uh, that was the point that in my third characteristic, the difference between man and nature is that man, the human race, has a solidarity to it so that we can legitimately say we were in Adam. No angel can say I was in Michael. That's never used. And the divine institutions of marriage are not true of angels. Never, you don't have baby angels. I mean, you may have them in an artist with a little little baby walking around a cherub with his wings on. But uh, angels don't make babies. Uh, humans do. And so there is in, there's a direct link. Obviously, the genetic tissue that we carry around is all coming from Adam. process, the process of providence, you've hit upon there, uh, George, a problem of 
How does God providentially run his universe? It's a larger question than just fetal development. It's a question I deal with with the weather. Um, how, does, how does this happen? How can... Do I, and it's expressed this way. Um, if I had an infinitely large computer and I had a perfect computer program, could I initialize the program and run history from it like this? And I think as Christians we have to say obviously no. Obviously, no. History is not run that way. Somehow, and this is going to, again, get into the dating mechanisms and so on, somehow God is always tampering with the, with the universe. And there's no other way of expressing it when you read Proverbs, Job, and the wisdom passages, and he challenges the men in those days to go out here and look at what I am doing. He doesn't say, go out and look at what the plants are doing very interesting. He says, go out and look what I am doing. So scripturally, we have to view the fact that God is continually tampering with the machine in some way, and if he wasn't, then we couldn't pray. And I think that if you get mechanistic in your idea that God just sort of like deistically, you know, he set up the universe and he says, okay, good job, I'll see you in eternity or something. What do you do with prayer? You've undercut the whole concept. So, what was that? Deism. Deism. And, and that's why, see, all these things are related. They come back and haunt you spiritually if you get, go wild on any one of these things. And that's why we, as Christians, we have to kind of help each other think through. So, and we're never all going to be perfect. I mean, we all have theological warts. But what we try to do is at least minimize them. Because if we don't work hard within the Christian community of minimizing it, uh, it makes us too vulnerable spiritually. And we pay an awful price later in practical areas. the rationality of scripture that, that, that when, scripture, when we really submissively look at scripture we're encountering the mind of God and that's what amazes you the more you never outgrow the wonder I think as long as you become a Christian your wonder grows because you make these discoveries of the mind of God um, 
that this piece fits this piece. Gee, he really knows what he's doing. Isn't he neat? And that, in, that, business, that thrill of seeing how neat our God is and how he slick and how he pulls things off. Um, that's the glory of God coming through the scripture to our spirits. Um, nine o'clock and I said we wouldn't go over so I'm being faithful to my promise. Do what? There was a, there was a book written uh, called Off Malus who's the Latin word for belly button and that was a serious question. Now the other serious question is were there any rings in the trees in the Garden of Eden? And these are legitimate questions because they'll hinge when we get into the age of the universe. They're related to that question. So we'll save that one.